Hey, thanks for joining us online. If you could do me a favor, take your Bibles and turn to John, the 14th chapter. We're going to pick it up in John 14, uh, verse 1. And uh, for those of you who listened last week when Cal preached, maybe you're wondering, isn't that the exact same verse that Cal took us to last week? And the answer to that is yes. He did the first half of the first verse, let not your heart be troubled, six words. I'm doing the heavy lifting. I'm taking the second half of the same verse, a total of seven words, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, if you've attended Harvest for any season of time, one of the things that you know is we tend to move very, very quickly through passages of Scripture. Last year before Easter, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, 15 uh, messages covering 16 chapters. Uh, a while back, we went through the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters in 16 weeks. We like to take big bites and chew quickly, but in this season, in this unusual season that we find ourselves in, we're going to move very, very slowly through what Jesus is telling us in these first few verses of John 14, because I think for us as a church, for us as a community and for us as a nation, this is important instruction. These are important verses. These are things that we have to get right as we navigate through situations that we just haven't found ourselves in before. It's interesting as I think about this weekend, normally uh, this would be the start of spring break here in Michigan. So what we would be experiencing is that attendance would be down this week. We would have many of our people, they would be gone for spring break. They would be headed to Florida or they would be down in Gulf Shores or somewhere warm. And the reality is, yeah, attendance is down a little this week. It's, um, it's three. It's me, it's Emo, it's Lucas. And other than that, the room is empty. We would be saying, hey, are you glad to have the kids home? Isn't it great to have the kids home for a while? And I think at this point, you're kind of, Maybe beyond that first joy, as the kids have been home for several weeks, we would be talking about Easter and getting all excited about our celebrations that would be scheduled as we meet together next week and celebrate that special holiday. But what we're going through right now is not normal. There's no other way to describe it. And the sad part is, is I don't know when normal is going to be normal again, because even as I speak to you today, as you watch the news, the, the trend lines are not slowing. The infections of coronavirus have not slowed down. The death rates are still climbing. The curve that we're all hoping to see flatten still pretty steep. And as I prepared this message, it was interesting. The news that I've just heard on CNN or Fox News is still echoing in my ears. President Trump on Tuesday night addressed the nation, and I quote, he said, I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We are going to go through a very tough two weeks. The White House task force in trying to get a handle on what we can expect in relation to this pandemic, this virus, they've projected that as many as 240,000 Americans could die due to coronavirus. To kind of put that in some perspective for you, that's more casualties than U.S. soldiers that were lost in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, World War I, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan combined. We, we find ourselves in the middle 
of just an epic new season. There's a lot of sorrow, but it's not just medical concerns that trouble some of our hearts. The chairman of the Federal Reserve warned this week that as many as 47 million Americans could find themselves unemployed during the second quarter. And I understand as I look around this room, as I preach to an empty room, that there are many who are turning in online this morning and listening and and your hearts are troubled and my heart's troubled. And the word that Jesus has for his disciples starting in John 14 It's critical. It was critical for them. It was critical for us in this season. Not only are we dealing with the realities of what we see on the news, but we're also dealing with wondering what comes next. What does tomorrow hold? Not just what we're dealing with, but what we could be dealing with in the upcoming days, in the upcoming weeks. The British poet John Keats said it this way. He said, imaginary grievances have always been my torment more than real ones. And um, even as I look at that slide, John Keats, not a very attractive man, could have maybe used a little more sun, but, but I digress. But I, I get his point. He, he was tormented not just by what was, but what could be. And I understand worrying about what could happen next. It troubles my heart. The, the disciples were troubled men. They were dismayed and the trouble of their hearts was only a shadow of the darkness that would be upon them just in the next couple days, in the next couple weeks. And as I read John 14 and listen to Jesus comfort his disciples as they go in through as they're going into and through this season of difficulty it's hard for me to imagine that if he were to speak to us today if his words could be recorded that he would want us to hear today that they would be very different from the comfort and the instruction that he gave to his disciples he starts John 14 verse 1 Cal preached on this last week let not your hearts be troubled To to set the context, Jesus is in the upper room. It is the night that he is going to be betrayed. He has washed his disciples' feet. He has celebrated Passover with his friends. And after they share the Passover dinner, we read in John 13, verse 21, we read these words. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. That phrase, let not your heart be troubled, could just as easily be translated, don't let your heart shudder. And please don't miss this. Though Jesus was fully God, he was also fully human. And as he realized the chain of events that would be triggered when his friend Judas betrayed him, that he would be arrested, that he would be beaten, that he would be tried, that he would be hung on a cross, The text very clearly says that his heart is shuddering, that his heart is troubled. Jesus knows and understands what it means to have a troubled heart. And because Jesus understands completely what we're feeling, he has the expertise, he has the right, and as God, he has the authority to instruct us on where we should focus our hearts in a season like this, where if we're not careful, We will be overcome by anxiety and fear. So look what he says at the end of verse one. Just seven words, just two phrases. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is laying a foundation here of what is true. As the disciples are dealing with fears and what is and what could be and what 
they might experience in the next few days. Jesus is focusing their minds back on what is foundational, what is real, what is true, and what will not change. The sermon's fairly simple this morning. It just has two parts. Shouldn't be hard to see from the text. The first point is this, believe in God. The second will be, believe also in me. So this first phrase, believe in God, I'm just going to tell you, it's very hard for me to understand how someone could choose to deny the existence of God. I think the existence of God is evident Every time we look at creation, every time we see a sunrise, a sunset, I believe that God has made himself evident through his creation. But there are some who choose to deny the existence of God. And should someone choose to deny the existence of God, let me just make three quick points. If you choose to deny the existence of God, history is not your ally. History is not your ally Archaeology and anthropology has studied civilizations as far back as we can of the earliest times and evidences of civilizations of men and what they have found that this idea of there being a God is a part of every civilization. And this goes back to the earliest cultures. While the idea that each culture or people group might have of God differs the fact that there is a God or a higher power or a supreme being, that remains a constant. And, and, and why is this true? Well, I think it's true for several reasons. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. It's like I mentioned a minute ago. It's obvious when we observe our universe that there must be a designer, that there must be a creator beyond the evidence of creation, we're told in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first chapter in chapter 1, verse 26, that we were created in the image of God, that we are image bearers of God. And as image bearers of a creator, we have a, a sense, a reason to believe that there is a creator God. And a third reason is we read in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has placed eternity in our hearts. So due to creation, due to the fact that we are image bearers and created in God's image and that God has placed eternity in our hearts, it is natural for man to gravitate towards the idea of an existence of God. Now today, in a culture and in so much news that we are inundated with that is driven by secular humanism, it is easy for us to begin to think that we are in a minority to place any type of faith in God. It's interesting, noted atheist Richard Dawkins mocks those who believe in God, and he famously said, and I quote, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims to not believe in evolution, so someone who doesn't believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked. But I would rather not consider that. But in spite of what we're inundated with, what the atheists might say, the reality is that polling companies such as Gallup and Pew Research, as they poll Americans, they find that as many as 90% of Americans currently believe in a God, a higher power, or a higher being. If you choose to deny the existence of God, please understand history is not your ally. Secondly, science is not your friend. History is not your ally and science is not your friend. I fully believe that an objective view of the scientific evidence will lead you to the conclusion that there is a creator God. 
Science is not incompatible or at odds with faith. The complexity and interdependence of our universe screams that there is a God, that there is a designer, and complex, sophisticated design demands the existence of God. Romans 1.20 says it this way. Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, and he says, speaking of God, he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made So they are without excuse. So Paul says, since the beginning of man, creation has been evidence that has convinced man of the existence of God. And it's only when I bring certain presuppositions to the study of science that I can come to any other conclusion than that God actually exists. If a scientist looks at the evidence but presupposes that there is uh, no supernatural in existence, that there is no such thing as miracles, that for anything to be scientifically proven, that it has to be observable and repeatable. If he denies the supernatural, it should come as no surprise that his conclusion would not include the existence of God. See, your presuppositions formulate your conclusions, and it is only when science is studied with the presupposition that there is no God, that the conclusion can lead you to believe that there is no God. If I were to stand before you this morning, and if I were to tell you that, hey, I just don't believe in this whole COVID-19 thing. I just, I don't believe that this whole coronavirus thing is real. You would respond and be like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, like have you objectively looked at the evidence? Do you, do you live in a bubble? Are you like a bubble boy? Do you watch the news? Have you seen what's going on in New York? Has your life not been disrupted in any way? Do you not go to the grocery store and see what's going on there? Do you have like some secret stash of toilet paper? Like, are you immune to how much our world has changed in the last few weeks? But for me to believe falsely that there is no such thing as COVID-19, you would quickly begin to say, why would he believe such a thing? And what would you would come to find is that I have some presuppositions that it basically inform my conclusions. Maybe I believe that this is all about some political agenda, that there is some movement to disrupt a coming election. Or maybe I just don't trust the news sources. I just believe that everything's fake news and I don't believe any of it. Or maybe I believe there's some mass conspiracy of some sort for reasons unknown. To look at the world and to see God's fingerprints and believe that he doesn't exist would be as crazy for me to believe that our world is not facing a crisis with our current pandemic. It's interesting, Charles Darwin said this and his book, Origin of Species, he says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And the problem that Charles Darwin couldn't fully understand in his day is that there are many complex, successive, slight modifications. There are many processes that cannot be explained according to his theory. You cannot explain 
the process of photosynthesis is inventing itself. You cannot explain blood coagulation, explaining or just existing on its own. When you consider flight, when you consider sight, you can't say that these were modifications that were creating an advantage because half an eye creates no advantage. You either see or you don't. And you didn't go from not seeing to the complexity of sight through just a slow, natural process. The complexity and interconnectedness of our universe demands that we believe in a God. Evolution as a theory has completely broken down according to what the inventor of the theory said would cause it to break down. And if our universe cannot make itself, there must be a maker. And if you choose to deny the existence of God, I'm just telling you, science is not your friend. And finally, if you deny the existence of God, not only is history not your ally and science not your friend, philosophy is your nightmare. Philosophy is your nightmare. Uh, Atheist Carl Sagan summarized how atheism frames a person's worldview. Listen to what he says. He said, We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up a universe which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. This is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. A couple things. An atheist scientist, Carl Sagan, will argue for the existence of multiple universes without a shred of evidence that any other universe exists and yet will not consider the possibility that there is a God. I find that ironic. But secondly, the last thing that he says in this quote, this is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. And that is the core problem with atheism. It's not just that you don't believe in a God, it's where that leads you philosophically. Because if you don't believe in a God, that means that you believe that life is meaningless. If there's no life after death, then this life is all we have and it's meaningless. We are just here by random chance. The best we can do is live for the moment to enjoy the speck of a lifetime that we have. There's no foundation in the world for right and wrong. Each culture gets to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. And by the way, to believe not just as an atheist where that there is no God, but to believe in a God who is distant, that cannot be known, that cannot be discovered, that is not personal, those beliefs as well as atheism lead you to the same conclusion. If God can, can't, cannot be known, it is the same as there not being a God philosophically. And it leads us to a very dark place because life becomes absolutely meaningless. If you deny the existence of God, listen, History is not your ally. Science is not your friend. And philosophy is a nightmare. So when life begins to get scary for the disciples, Jesus goes back to the main thing, the foundation, believe in God. But Jesus doesn't end it there. Look at what he says next. Believe in God, believe also in me. And and, and I want you to get this because this is important. Belief in God in and of itself, doesn't solve the crisis. It only creates the crisis. I'm going to put a verse up that I had on the screen earlier. Look again at Romans 1.20. 
It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived. So what that says is, when we observe creation, not only do we understand that there's a God, but we understand something about who God is, that he is eternally powerful, that he exists eternally, that he is holy, that he is divine. It says, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, then look at the last phrase. It says this, it says, so they are without excuse. See, see, there's the crisis. If there's a God who is eternally powerful, if there is a God who is divine by his very nature, then what this indicates to us is this God that exists is very different than what we know ourselves to be. And the entire history of civilization, no matter where you look on the globe, no matter how far back you go in history, the whole history of human existence gives us example after example of man creating religious systems that help him bridge the gap between his finiteness and God's eternalness, between his fallenness and God's holiness. Religious system upon religious system where man works to make himself acceptable to a holy God. Some examples of this going back to the ancient Egyptians. It's interesting, the ancient Egyptians back in the Old Testament days, they believed that cats were gods. Therefore, they worshiped cats. They treated them as royalty. Not, listen, not, not tigers, not lions. We're talking kitty cats. It's crazy. Of all animals, cats. In the Old Testament, we read where Israel worshiped Canaanite gods. One of those gods was Moloch. And the way that you pacified Moloch, the way that you made yourself acceptable to him is you sacrificed your own children to the god Moloch. In the New Testament, in the city of Corinth, the people worshiped a god by the name or a goddess by the name of Aphrodite. And the worship of Aphrodite involved temple prostitutes and orgies. If you study Islam, Islam requires its followers to have daily prayers and perform a pilgrimage to Mecca. Catholics worship not just Jesus, but Mary. And they encourage prayers for and to the dead. And Protestants, including us, if we're not careful, we create religious system after religious system. Here's what followers of Jesus do, here's what they don't do. And all of a sudden we base our worth and our acceptance before God on our performance based off the rules we've created rather than the gospel. See, the question all religions are trying to ask is what, what, must, what must we do to become acceptable to a divine God? And in trying to answer that question, you need to understand throughout history and throughout every civilization, there is the admission that we left to ourselves have a problem we have a disease, we are in a crisis, we have an infection. Mankind is dealing with a pandemic and that pandemic is what the Bible calls sin. It's interesting. I've, I've fallen into this routine in the last few weeks. I, I wake up early and uh, I'll take a shower, I get dressed, I turn on the TV and I'm immediately flipping between Fox News and Fox Business News and CNN uh, used to be ESPN, but there's not a lot going on in sports these days. But I'm, I'm looking at the news station, seeing what has developed, what's happened during the course of the last few hours, what happened overnight. And what, what I'm looking for is not 
the, the new count of how many people are infected with the coronavirus. I'm not focused on the new death tally or what's happened overnight as it, remains, as it relates to the amount of people that have died of coronas, corona. I'm not listening or looking for someone to explain to me the new testing procedures that they've developed. I'm not looking to be informed about how we're struggling to have enough ventilators or equipment for our doctors or nurses. Like, like I want to wake up one morning very, very soon, and the news that I want to hear, the news that I long to hear, is that somebody's found a cure. That somebody's found a remedy, that somebody's found a way to deal with this issue once and for all so that the coronavirus no longer remains a threat or a fear. Like, tell me about a cure. That's what we need. We need a remedy. And I don't want to jump ahead too quickly, but what you need to understand is that when Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, what Jesus is doing as he says those two phrases is he is saying, not only is there a God, but there is a remedy. And that remedy has a name and the name is Jesus. There's a big idea to this sermon this morning. That's this, that Jesus is our remedy just look down a couple verses in this same chapter, John 14. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And normally when we focus on that verse, what we're teaching on is this idea that Jesus is the only way to God. As I looked at it and studied and prepared this week, the thing that impressed me, that has never jumped out to me in the same way that it has in this season, there is a way to God. Jesus is a cure. He is a remedy. He has provided a path that gives us a bridge to a holy divine God. Two verses later in John 14, verse 8, one of the disciples turns and says, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus answers him in verse 9 and Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's interesting. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that when we see Jesus, we see an exact replica of the nature of who God is. If you want to understand what God looks like, if you want to understand the character and the nature of God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And what Jesus is telling a scared disciple, a disciple with a troubled heart, is he's saying, Philip, you know me. God is not distant. He is not far off. He's here. He's for you. You've watched me. You know me. I don't think it's a strong leap to think in this moment as Jesus says these words to Philip that he is impressing on Philip's mind and the rest of the disciples' minds in the room that everything that they are about to see Jesus I'd say go through, but maybe a better word is endure. Everything that Jesus is going to endure on our behalf is a demonstration of how he loved us and he came to save us. And he came to do what we could not do and what we couldn't do on our own, what no religious system will ever be able to accomplish is simply this. Jesus provides the remedy. He provides the cure. Anywhere you look in scripture, when man is confronted with who God really is, when they see God in all of his glory, 
the wrecked. All the way back in the book of Exodus, we see Moses go up on Mount Sinai and he pleads with God to show him his glory. And as Moses returns to the people, it says that Moses' face was a glow from being in the presence of the glory of God. And it says the people were terrified. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 catches a glimpse, just a glimpse of the robe of God in the throne room. And the prophet replies, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Mark records that Three disciples, Peter, James, and John, climb a mountain with Jesus. And when they get to the top of the mountain, Jesus is revealed to them in all of his glory. And Mark says that they fell terrified at the sight of the glorified Christ. And John, Jesus' best friend amongst all of the disciples, he records in Revelation 1, when Jesus appears to him in all of his glory, John, Jesus' best friend in this life, says he fell at his feet as if he were dead. See, when man is confronted with God in his full glory, what we understand in that moment is we are wrecked. We need a cure. Jesus reminds his disciples that he is God, that he is the, um, the remedy. So, just as I close for this week, for most of us, I'm anticipating that the next few weeks, the next few days, maybe the next few months are going to be difficult and they're going to be confusing and conflicting. Even as I preach this message, I would normally be already looking forward to celebrating Easter with our church and uh, the reality that um, that's not going to take place next week. I'm telling you, that's heartbreaking. So we're celebrating in anticipation of Easter next week, but we're dealing with the realities that we're confronted with in our current crisis. But I want to remind you that the gospel that we celebrate, the good news of Jesus Christ, the reason why we celebrate Easter is because it's not just some religious system that man has created to try to cure himself and bridge the gap between himself and God. It is a celebration that God provided the cure, the remedy for our condition and through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we can be healed. As we close, I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to hang with me a couple more minutes. I know that some of you are used to getting up and getting your stuff together and leaving during the close of the service, but I would ask you just in this moment, I'd like you to linger just for a second. Taylor is going to sing a song over us and um, I'd like you to listen. Good news is you have nowhere to go, right? The news will be there when we're done. The Facebook posts and the social networking will be there in just a few minutes. But I want you to listen to the words of this song. It is a reminder that above all, Jesus is not just our savior. He is our remedy. Thanks for listening.